Welcome to the Cotton Specialist Corner Podcast. I'm Steve Brown, Extension Agronomist at Auburn University. And with me are Brian Paralisi of Mississippi State Extension Cotton Specialist there, Hunter Frame from Virginia Tech, the Extension Cotton Specialist there. And also we have Brian Arnell from Oklahoma State, who is an Extension Soil Scientist there. So welcome, guys, and look forward to our discussion today. For years, we've explored the effects of various foliar products in cotton. Some have been micronutrients. Others have been versions of plant growth hormones or PGRs. And still others have sought to attribute some plant responses that protect the plant or contribute to plant health. But in the distant past, we've studied these products maybe and haven't seen consistent yield improvements. But more recently, we've sort of entered a new era. We have some new products that are reported to do a lot of different things. And that's really our discussion today. And I'm really looking forward to our guests helping me out because I confess that my understanding is limited. And that's why I've asked them because I think they're much farther along in their understanding of these products as well as the possibility. So I'll start with Brian Paralisi. What should we call these products as a group? This all got started as a group collectively at the Beltwide Conference. We were trying to come up with a new project and we asked ourselves, what's the most frequently asked question you're getting from your growers? And it had to do with these microbial products and we're calling them microbial. And what we're trying to look at is if there's a nitrogen use efficiency advantage to using these products. And if so, where is that point? And will anything separate in terms of yield or uh, nitrogen use efficiency, you know, with the cost of fertilizer over the past couple of years, I guess that was a lot of the incentive. And so that's kind of my take on how it started and what we're calling it. Then I'll pass the baton over to the other guys to see their take. So a lot of the stuff that's out there on the market, we've got the project with the cotton group, but there's a wide range of things on the marketplace right now. So our group's looking at the nutrient-based, which are heavy microbial you have those that create nitrogen. You have those that are symbiotic relationships with the plant. You have those that are breaking down organic matter. And in the same realm, you have microbes and enzymes that might release phosphorus or potassium from bound structures. We have enzymes that are supposed to be triggering the plant to grow a better root or to be stronger. So, you know, we lump them in as microbial, but we're talking about stuff that is microbe, fungi, enzyme, our organic acids are coming back into play. Algae, there's a lot of folks that have algae and that's more of an enzymatic product. And so the thing is, it's easy to lump one big sum, but there's a whole range of different, let's call them modes of action. I guess that's the best way to say it, or proposed modes of action out there. And we're still trying to get a handle on them. How about it, Hunter? Any other comments on that topic of how we lump this group or describe this group? No, I think Arnell hit it right on the money. I mean, I'm just getting my feet wet looking at these materials. And I think the cotton specialist project in terms of looking at them on cotton is well-timed and we're on the front slope of this. But these products have been really geared towards crops like corn, especially the symbiotic bacteria or the mycorrhizae fungi 
that are looking to increase nutrient use or nutrient availability. I think Dr. Arnell touched on the different groups and classes. So how were these products discovered? What are some of the sources of these products? We'll talk about discovery. Who would want to comment on that? Most of what we're looking at are bacterial-based, and they have multiple, but there is, I'm not sure which one is a fungi. Is it the Intex? I think so. I mean, we're looking at a, like you say, I mean, like a snippet of what's out there, but these are the products that we've chosen or have been, you know, people who wanted us to look at this. Talk about how these products may have been initially discovered. There's a range of, from my understanding, you know, some of the companies are pretty tight-lipped on where it comes from. So how much is the, it was discovered 20 years ago and the, just kept getting bought or sold by company to company. Some of the current methods are what I call casting a large net. So you got companies out there sampling soils that are doing, performing well, performing poorly. You're looking at soils that have stresses. And so they're sampling the plants, what's enzymes are in the plants, they're sampling the soil or their fungi or bacteria in the soil that they're collecting and trying to isolate. They're looking at wild types, kind of like what we've done on the breeding side, you know, where our breeders and several crops are pulling genes from weeds. They're competitive. I know I just listened to a talk on the rice side, trying to pull some genes from the weedy rice and put it into grain rice. And so there's been a lot of different functions and factions and other things are just maybe it's been well known that a microbe or a fungi can produce nitrogen. It's a nitrifying bacteria. And so the work for the last 10 years has been, how can we take something we grow in the lab and get it to survive and be symbiotic with a plant? And so several of them are known and they're just getting the strains and working on strains. And some of the jugs that we'll have might have 50 strains and some of the jugs we have have two strains. So it sounds like corn is one of the crops that this concept has been explored in a little more detail, but is that primarily been focused on nitrogen and enhancing uptake and things like that? What I've seen, it's nitrogen and phosphorus primarily. There are some that advertise health, but it's heavily on the nitrogen nutrient uptake and a little bit on the health side from what I've seen. All right, question for Hunter Frame. As we talk about nitrogen, I remember having a conversation with a friend who's retired from the ag business and he's now in the orchard business and he's trying to do some regenerative ag stuff. And it's kind of almost contrary to what his career was spent doing. But I made the comment to him that if we could somehow, and I was totally unaware of this whole group of compounds that you're talking about, but if we could somehow help grass crops such as corn, rice, and wheat become nitrogen fixers, then we change the world. And he said, well, that's already being done. And so he was referring to this group of products. So Hunter, does this affect the plant or is this affecting the soil, the microflora in the soil? Come in on that. Yeah, I mean, I think from the nitrogen fixation, a lot of these companies are approaching it very similar to how we've handled soybeans and like peanuts in the past in terms of symbiotic relationships. I know, like Dr. Arnell just mentioned that you know, some of these jugs have multiple species in them, and then some of them have two. There's a product that's fairly well known in the market now that uses two specific bacterial species, and they have to mix them together and then put it out in furrow. But really, you're treating the soil and then hoping that you get basically an inoculation, just like our traditional legume crops, that that bacteria becomes associated and forms that symbiotic relationship to fix nitrogen. Now, just like in legume crops, and y'all can correct me on this, my understanding of this is 
the same formulation that works for corn is not necessarily going to work for cotton. And they're not as prolific of nitrogen fixers as the natural legume symbiotic bacteria that are formed. And in the use of synthetic inorganic fertilizers in corn and cotton systems, I don't think, unless they come across an amazing discovery where they find a species that is a prolific nitrogen fixer that will associate with corn and cotton. But that's been my understanding. But I mean, you have companies claiming up to the highest one I've seen is 40 pounds of nitrogen. And that's pretty significant if you're in dry land corn and you're putting out 160 to 180 pounds. I mean, that's a quarter of your nitrogen that you can reduce there. Or in cotton, when you're maybe talking about 40% of your need, or maybe even more if you're talking 40 pounds. Again, is that enabling the plant to uptake nitrogen more efficiently, or is it something else? Y'all comment on that. I don't think it's increasing the plant's ability to efficiently uptake. I think that's where some of these fungal products may work that actually excrete exudates that make phosphorus more available for uptake. I don't know if they're working on the plant's ability to take them up. You know, that's what biostimulants, some of the foliar products are looking to do is to increase the metabolism of the plant maybe. But these bacterial symbiotic relationships are just, they're fixing that nitrogen so it's there. There's more nitrogen in the soil, basically, just like a legume crop. And so that plant's able to take it up and you're able to reduce the nitrogen that you're applying. Yeah, that's the way I understand it. So like we were talking about multiple modes of action. I mean, some of these products that we're actually testing are, well, I think one of them is a foliar applied that is supposed to increase efficiency, but most of them are going to just claim to have more availability in the soil. So the way we're testing them is to have different nitrogen rates without any products and going to have a flat nitrogen rate that's reduced with the products to see if it has a comparable yields with the full rate of nitrogen without the product. Brian Arno, you want to comment on that too? So we have those that create the nitrogen, those that stimulate the plant. These also got the symbiotics of the fungi that may have a relationship with the plant root to extend the root zone. Then you have those that are very traditional biologicals, what we would have seen 10 years ago, that are more about breaking down organic matter. So the whole purpose is to speed up that mineralization process, which is releasing more, making it more available in the root zone. So kind of like Brian Pierlisi said, it's the modes of action that are out there. The challenging thing for what we do, if you think about it, my concern with a lot of these is that the environments we're testing, especially if you just look at the cotton belt, We're talking to a wide range of folks right here from Oklahoma all the way to the East Coast. And so the range of environments, range of organic matters, a lot of these were built in the Corn Belt under 4% organic matter, deep, highly productive mollusol dark soils. I don't have many of those in Oklahoma. Paralisi, you've probably got some. Hunter, you've got some, but you've also got some three-quarter percent organic matter, deep sands that don't have a lot to break down. So the environments we're testing this in, that's the coolest part of this project, is the diversity of soils and environments. Do some of these products also, apart from the soil uptake of nitrogen and phosphorus, does some of them also seek to affect stress tolerance within the plant? Is that true of some of these products? If you read some of the labels, some will state that the addition of the product will make the plant more resilient to stresses, whether that's heat, drought, or nutrient stress. 
And so it depends on which one you're reading, but many of them hint at least to some level of, you know, stress tolerance. Okay. These are biological products. At least some of them are. How are they applied? I've talked to some folks and they said, well, you got some that are in furrow, some that are foliar applied. And if it's a biological product, how do you handle them and preserve their activity? So anybody comment on that? Well, I can kind of talk a little since I'm heading up this project and I had to distribute the product to all the cooperators. If you read the label, a lot of them will have infro or foliar, but talking to some of the reps, a lot of them would rather have, you know, it put out infro. There's another product at five node cotton. Some claim that have living, you know, biological ingredients in there, you know, don't want them exposed to sunlight, keep them in a cool, dark place. And then there's like a six-week shelf life once you take it out of the cold storage. Then on the other hand, you have some dry powders that, you know, you can just put it on the seed and plant it and it's good to go. So there's different ways of handling them and there are different ways of applying them. But most of the ones that we're applying are in furrow on the seed with two going out foliarly. But the label does say that on most of the others, except for the seed treated, you could apply foliar. And in some of the other crops, I've had a lot of soil applied. So I've done this in wheat, corn, and sorghum. And so there's a whole range of applications. Speaking of that, of your work in other crops, what's been the consistency of performance and the observed effects with these products? I don't remember who said it, but there's another state specialist who's been working along the same lines. The best term is consistently inconsistent. I really went in heavy last season. That would be the 22 crop. And if y'all know of anything, what happened in my part of the country in 22, it wasn't a good year. So, you know, Brian Pierlisi is talking about how that we're testing all the products at a low rate against a nitrogen response curve. Uh, Last year in my sorghum, I had no response to nitrogen on five locations just because we had such heat stress and we had pollination issues. The cotton side, we actually had amazing cotton yields, but had such residual left over that I still hardly had a nitrogen response curve. So that also goes back to the challenge of these products is that, especially the nitrogen producers, how are we going to manage something if it says, let's just say it's 40 pounds? Are you going to reduce your rate by 40? Are you going to split apply? How are you going to manage that to actually know that you're getting a response or you're getting your money back? A lot of farmers are just going with their regular rate and adding this or maybe cutting by 20 pounds. I've done hundreds of in-response studies in farmers' fields, and I'm pretty confident I could cut most by 20 pounds and be effective without anything added. All right, let's step back a minute and say, again, we're kind of on the front edge of this science, if we can describe it like that. What do y'all think were the possibilities of this? You know, I kind of alluded initially that, you know, we worked in the past with some stuff. We saw very subtle responses, nothing great. But if you change the nitrogen world, you have done something. Or if you change stress tolerance, you've really accomplished something. What are the possibilities of, you know, five years down the road? Where could we possibly be with this kind of technology? So we'll start with Brian Paralisi and go east from there. You know, like you described, if we could change those things, you would have changed the world of agriculture in the cotton industry, you know, just from a sustainability standpoint and, you know, just yields in general. But it's going to be hard to capture that with just the variability from year to year and environment to environment to know exactly 
that's why we have the scale on such a large scale to see if it hits anywhere, if there's any consistencies. You know, like we said, it is consistently inconsistent, but we do know that in Mississippi, we're going to apply 100 to 120 pounds of nitrogen year in and year out. And with the input cost at such a price point that if we could consistently reduce that amount, it'd be a game changer. It might increase acreage and, you know, I could see, you know, down the road, make it just more profitable, but we're a long ways from that. How about a hundred? Man, this is going to be controversial right here, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I mean, we just came out of a pandemic, right? And there's a lot of talk about gain of function research on viruses, but I think the technology's there. If they can find strains of bacteria or fungal species that will, in terms of for the nitrogen, will associate with the corn and cotton roots, I could see some genetic manipulation and some gain of function type research to get these things to be more prolific, you know, looking 10 to 20 years down the road. So it could be something where we're using uh, inoculant like in peanuts and soybeans for corn and cotton. And environmentally, I don't know if it's better or worse. I fight with our NRCS people about cover crops with this, right? Because I can get a hairy vet crimson clover mix to make in Virginia 250 pounds of nitrogen. But is that more environmentally friendly than putting 120 pounds of inorganic out? Because you know you're losing a huge portion of that legume nitrogen in the green manure in the environment. So, you know, but I could see some like maybe gain of function research on these bacterial strains to really get 80 to 100 pounds of nitrogen being fixed and corn and cotton systems potentially. I agree with Hunter. So one thing I look at is, you know, 15, 20 years ago when we were testing these products, there wasn't any big companies. It wasn't a lot of money. It was basically mom and pops, small startups doing this. And now the magnitude of dollars being thrown in this arena, the companies involved are no longer the small companies. And if a large corporation doesn't have one of these products on their portfolio, it's just because they haven't advertised it yet. They've all got them. They've all won them. And so that means just the dollars going in. Now we're talking about, you know, just the amount of industrial research being done where I'm expecting us to have more positives than we did. Right now, though, I think it's still a shotgun on environmental that we don't know what environments are conducive to a response or non-conducive. You kind of answered my next question, which was going to be, what are the providers of these products? So basically, Brian, I know you're saying we've gone from the small group to now the global companies are really committed to this, right? I had some friends that were still have friends. They're still friends that are agronomists for large corporations. And the word was a year ago, they were told by the board of directors to find a product for the portfolio. They didn't care what. It was their job on the line if they didn't add a product to the portfolio. So yeah, everybody's got them. I can name names here. I think looking back in the 1980s, Monsanto bet their future on biotechnology and they had the fuel of Roundup to pay the bills and sustain them. And then they changed the world with different traits. And so again, perhaps in 10 or 15 years, we could see the same. Somebody emerge with some miraculous or really spectacular product. So very interesting. All right. Brian Pierlisi, talk about the Extension Cotton Specialist Working Group Beltwide Project. You kind of alluded to that. Talk about its purpose and what we hope to learn and then what are some of the treatments and what are some of the things we'll measure in process. Like I mentioned earlier, the reason behind it was we wanted to have a better answer to growers when asked, you know, what about microbials? What should I plant? Does this work? 
And so after that discussion, we decided to do a belt-wide study and we opened the door to all the cotton specialists plus, you know, Dr. Arnall. And we have 22 locations and we're testing. We have an 11 treatment study, which five of the treatments are the standard nitrogen curve. And then we have six, we'll call them microbial products that we're testing. And I guess we're primarily looking how it compares to the nitrogen response curve. Is there yield benefits? Obviously, we're taking soil samples to see any kind of base residual nitrogen. And we're going to obviously measure yield, fiber quality. We're going to look at in-season tissue, you know, plant status, so to speak. And we're actually going to do some whole plant sampling as well. I think we're going to be from Arizona across the cotton belt to Virginia. So it's going to be a pretty broad, you know, look at the performance. How many sites, roughly? You kind of covered the range across the belt, but number of trials, do you have a number on that just yeah, yet? 22. 22, wow. Well, thanks for joining us for this session of the Cotton Specialist Corner Podcast. We're appreciative of Cotton Incorporated for their sponsorship and promotion of this effort. And I do appreciate the insights and comments of my guests here, Brian Paralisi from Mississippi State, Brian Arnell from Oklahoma State, and Hunter Frame from Virginia Tech. Thanks, guys.